This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Our guest today, Sophia, is a clinical psychologist with a private practice in San Francisco, California. Her practice is dedicated to providing psychoanalytic psychotherapy to gender dysphoric and trans-identified adolescents and young adults, as well as detransitioners, and parent consultation. She, along with my co-host Aaron Terrell, recently attended the National Transgender Health Summit in San Francisco. And here's our conversation about the conference. Welcome uh, back to Transparency. Uh, We have uh, our guest, Sophia, here with us today. Uh, That is not her real name. She's going by a pseudonym. Um, But uh, 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 Sophia and I recently attended the San Francisco Trans Health Summit um, uh, this past weekend where we we learned a lot. Um, Yeah, I'll stop talking. Let's hear hear your, uh, uh, your impressions of this past weekend. Oh, wow. Where do I start? Um, I, well, I Jack think... Turbin canceled la- last minute. We could, yeah. Was that's, he scheduled uh, to speak? He was. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Apparently had emergency surgery. Um, yeah. That's what we were told. Um... Testicular implants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, but yeah. He also recently the, canceled W Path. But sorry, go on, go on. I asked no, you to talk. That, you know, he was he was scheduled to talk at eight a.m. and I am not an uh, early morning riser. And I I uh, made a a very special effort to um, wake up early to get there to hear him, and he was not there. So that was uh, a relief and a disappointment. Um, so I, I I think you know the thing I can say really um, is. Um, in terms of the the impact on it is that it I found it incredibly disturbing um and you know there, there's a lot of things that were said that are so out there that we can um you know laugh about it and think this is just crazy um but but you know considering that these are the so-called leaders of the field um uh it's it's incredibly disturbing to think that these are the people who are making decisions, um, you know, that d- decisions in terms of their own patients, but also decisions that so many people. Yeah. Can we back oh. up maybe just a second and just contextualize the conference a little bit? So it's a San Francisco Trans Health Summit. So how was that advertised? Like, was that advertised just open to the general public? Well, it was, um, I don't know if sponsored is the right word, but it, it was through UCSF, right? The University of California, San Francisco. Um, it was called the uh, 2023 National Transgender Healthcare Summit. So it was national. Okay. So it's clinicians from throughout the United States? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. And, not, and clinicians, meaning mental health clinicians, but also physicians. So there were two different tracks. There was a medical track, um, at least for the the pre-conference day, um, which was um, really meant for more health professionals. Okay. Um, so there was the mental health track and the medical track. 
and there were con concurrent um, sessions. Um, so, and then Saturday and Sunday were more open to, to the general public. Okay. And is it connected at all to US PATH or is it more of an independently organized conference? Independently organized. Um, so I, I don't know how it was advertised. It, it was on the UCSF website. Um, and I don't know what they're, I, I don't know where they advertised. Um, you know, I, I heard about it through a colleague. Um, but I imagine that they advertised fairly widely, right? And distributed it to their, you know, professional networks or whatnot. Mm -hmm. There were probably, I would say, over a thousand people uh, in attendance. Maybe no, maybe not a good judge of, like, but in those those, those um, plenary sessions in the morning, it was pretty pretty packed. I can't. It was packed. Yeah, standing room only. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely quite a few hundred, if not uh, a, a thousand. Um, and I think the vast majority were um, mental health providers. I know a lot of the people who were uh, clearly and intentionally uh, trans. You know, like, like not you know like clearly <clears throat> trying to be be in a middle middle presentation there and a lot of those people who i would just assume were there um you know as as members of the trans community so to speak or um but then they were off, also off, uh, often the ones chiming in with questions referring to their patients and yada yada so i think a lot of one thing that I, I I really came to to realize over the weekend is that, and these these are typically people who look like they're in their late twenties, early thirties. I don't know if you would have the same assessment. And I, my my thinking is a lot of the um, kind of kind of people who who came of age in the in the you know twenty ten to twenty twenty are now you know you know in, in, in kind of kind of you know they, they were raised on on, on a lot of this ideology essentially and now they're in positions of actual um medical uh, uh authority professional uh, authority i think so and if i remember correctly some people who um you know either introduce themselves or kind of you know um uh refer to themselves as students um you yeah know, there was there was that that guy in the um apa session who was um very very insistent um, on um, this idea, uh, more than idea, but he, he seemed to be uh, willing to die on this hill that um, that the APA shouldn't accredit any sort of graduate program that doesn't train their students in gender affirmative care. Um, and he was actually very seriously wondering whether that would be a possibility. He was also... Uh basically uh, insisting that the APA release a statement calling uh, ROGD pseudoscience. Right. And they're, they're kind of like trying to be like, it's not really, you know, what we do. Um, but yeah, that was a whole other thing I, we'll, we'll get into because, um, because yeah, I don't know if people remember the the, the episode that uh, we did with uh, Eliza Mondegreen, who had been in person at the WPATH conference um, where I asked that uh, question that got me uh, kicked out. Um, that was the session with the APAs when I actually ultimately asked that question uh, in person. Um, and uh, that was... It, it, um, so what was the question, Kenya? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I asked what providers were doing or, or in the context... Because the, the, um, 
my initial question that I asked at the, at the WPATH conference was, um, what are providers doing to basically ensure that cis children aren't being transitioned uh, unnecessarily? And but then, so in the context that the the the, the session that we were attending, it was um, uh, the APA. Uh, was reworking the, it was a task force from the APA to rework the guidelines around um, uh, working with transgender patients. Um, so yeah, we trans went to that. Trans and, and trans and gender diverse. Yes, it, yes. Right? They, they keep emphasizing how important language is, how language changes over time. So so that's that's the uh, accepted language, right? That's the language yep. now. Yep. Yeah. And and they, they also were talking. Yeah, so it's they would say they would say gender expansive as well. Uh, gender diverse and gender, gender expansive. But yeah, the, the, the title was yeah transgender and gender diverse um, patients. And so I asked, um, you know, well, there was a lot of questions. One thing um, that <laughs> there's there's this, this uh, one of the domains, like the sections of the guidelines that they went over was around uh, assessment. And <clears throat> they're basically saying, you know, we're we're not really sure what to put in here. Um, we'll, you know, have a more fine-tuned task force down the line and kind of fill the fill out the assessment portion. Um, and so I asked, what, you know, will there be anything in the ultimate, uh, you, you know, in the, in the final version of this around actual assessment and what providers, like a map, roadmap you know, providers can actually follow to ensure that uh, cis children aren't, what did I say? That, yeah, that cis people, cis children, people aren't being um, uh, transitioned unnecessarily. I did, I did specify that I myself uh, was trans, and um, uh, then I, I, I said, and I don't believe this personally, but I felt it was important to say in the context to just remind people the framework that we're all working in, which is, as I said, we know that there are cis children and there are trans children, and how can providers basically determine which is which? Because it all rests on that. I mean, it. it I don't think they would ever vocally say that, but but it's very clear that you know they, there's there are these two very distinct groups, obviously. Um, anyway. Um, and uh, the the first response was so. First of all, all four of the people on the task force were um, three of them were they them's, and one was a binary trans man. Um, so the other there was a two two non-binary identified, one gender fluid identified, and then there was a binary trans man. Um, and so the the first responder, the first response to that my question was um, that it's not it's not a um, it's not a psychologist's job to assess somebody's gender. It's the psychologist's job to hear the patient, what their gender is, and then and then aid them in the, achieving their embodiment goals. Um, was the term that was used? Is um, yeah, achieving their embodiment goals. And um, then they they started making it quite personal. It's like you know, like I can't tell you. They they were as in the position of a psychologist was saying, you know, I can't tell you or you can't tell me what my gender is. It is what it is. I'm telling you what it is. You believe me, you know? And um, uh, so that was the, that was the, the first answer uh, was basically gender is impossible to assess. You only believe somebody when they tell you what their gender is. And this is including, this is including children. They're like, like minors is <clears throat> you just believe them and you assist them in achieving their embodiment goals. Um, and then the binary trans man his response was that um, we only talk about like 
concern around harms of medication and medical interventions in this context of trans and that and that that's rooted in fear of transness which is transphobia basically he's saying the question the question is rests in this notion that it's better to be cis than to be trans and yeah and then i think he realizes like wait the concern is like people being medicalized unnecessarily and um so he, yeah he reframed that to be the only reason it's considered a bad thing is because of fear of transness which is which is transphobia and uh sophia you kind of pointed out like like you, you should have like or not you didn't say you should have but basically like i had i had said that i was trans but i knew in that moment if i was like okay but wait a second i just told you that i am trans i'm not transphobic i knew the because because they were speaking entirely in the same kind of online ideologue speak we're all used to i knew the response back to that was going to be you know well you know people of a marginalized community can internalize the the you know the fear of that you know whatever um that kind of internalized transphobia that they go to um you did say uh, you said you said as a trans man um yeah. i i am concerned about yeah yeah right yeah yeah so um you know when when the psychologist responds and says any fear concern um or you know so-called concern about harm is expressed it's because of you know fear of transness or transphobia um so clearly if you follow that the logic is well you Aaron, must be uh must have internalized transphobia right yeah yeah um but they were they were quite civil um uh uh they seem kind of kind of flustered and upset by the question um mm. but but they they were they were civil uh and and actually the first responder um that makes it sound like a metal not, not, a, not a first responder in that sense but the first person who on the task force who answered the question uh they said you know if you if we want to talk about it like basically come find me after the session and we can talk more one-on-one -on -one. i didn't end up doing that because i knew it would have you know what where that's gonna go but yeah there's no point but um but yeah it was they it was very civil. I wasn't wasn't removed from the conference, so uh, so yeah, it was definitely worthwhile being there, being there physically. Um, yeah. Can't what was this? What was your sense like, of like the people sitting there around you? Like, did there feel like there was a thick tension in the room when you asked the question? Or yes, I did. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think so. And there were people who just seemed well when they started doing the whole clap, like snappy thing in in a like in agreement with the responses to me, like with those responses that were basically sort of chastising the, the basis of my question, you know, and they were all like, yes, you know, doing that, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, one, one person in the front row, she was a speaker, uh, uh, this uh, trans woman, uh, uh, she's a doctoral student. I can't remember what her field is, but uh, she kind of turned around. Oh, I don't, I don't think she's a student. I think she's actually, you know, she has a PhD. Oh, she, she, oh, okay. She does research in, um, I want to say epidemiology, if I remember. Okay. That sounds right. Yeah. And, and, and uh, that and morning. Self-described diva. Let's not forget yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. In, in that morning session, the, 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 um, she was a, the presenter, uh, for the whole, for the breakfast session earlier that morning. So that was Saturday morning in which one of her slides clearly said, that and she and she's I don't remember what she said about it. I just remember looking at the slide. I'm like, that's written there. It's printed. Was um, that uh, denying uh, gender affirming care to people with intellectual disabilities is a form of discrimination? Mm -hmm. um, and they, they wrote that intellectual disabilities and that it was discriminatory to um, 
yeah anyway um so which which completely confirmed what uh um Dan Karasik had said the, the evening before in the mental health track of the pre-conference sessions where he said that, um, yeah, anyway, I tweeted about that. We'll probably go into details about that uh, in a bit, but um, anyway, <clears throat> but that, that, uh, that presenter, um, uh, the doctor, she turned around and said, can you diagnose trans? And I said, no, but you can diagnose gender dysphoria. And she's like, mm, you know, um, but it, also in her intercession in the in the morning, she had said um, uh, that there are two paths to uh, seeking gender affirming care. One is gender dysphoria, and the other is gender euphoria. And uh, yeah, did, um, so a lot of it was like it's it's all about. They're very clear that it's all about reframing, going from like pathology to celebration. You know, it's like it it they're very very clear that that's that's the intention. Um, and so, so by not wanting to focus on gender dysphoria, but instead uh, seeking euphoria, and she did say that, or somebody said seeking euphoria, which is very much sounds like, like, can I go to my doctor just for opiates, or just, just what, you yeah. know, I'm, se I'm seeking a, euphoria. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a it's such a language game, he and and yeah. I mean, I have a couple of thoughts about what you were saying just about assessment before we get too far away from this idea of assessment and that they don't know what to include in that because if, what are we assessing at this point, right? And, and that was my challenge yeah. as an assessor when I was trying, I was receiving training to be an assessor. And so we had a checklist of things that we were supposed to ask about, you know, like their medical history, their psychiatric history, but it was so unclear, even to me as a trans person who I think I have a pretty decent grasp of what gender dysphoria is, it wasn't clear to me, okay, what are we supposed to do with this information? So we're asking these questions, you know, so they do have autism or they do have ADHD or they do have a trauma mm -hmm. background. So what are we supposed to do? And that's kind of speaking to your question, right? I mean, what is, let's say if there's a brand new clinician who's really keen to learn how to do this work and they're being taught how to assess, they want to know, okay, what are the inclusion exclusion criteria? What is my decision-making framework here? What is my role in this relationship as an assessor? And, and the, it sounds like there was no answer to that in this conference of, well, anyone who shows up, anyone who, who walks through the door must, must be a uh, candidate for these interventions just by the fact that they walk through the door. And that's, that's basically essentially what, what the APA was, was blatantly saying. It's like, we can't, we can't deter. Oh, that was another one was like, uh, cause I really listened to the audio and one of the, the responders, like, um, basically I'm inferring some sort of godlike, um, ability onto psychologists by expecting them to be able to determine who will benefit from these transition, from transition care and who won't. And so basically, and that yeah, it's, yeah, that it's a, they, an omnipotent fantasy Right. Right. Patients right. think that they can um, assess such things. It's coming out of some sort of omnipotent fantasy. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. It. but the other little point I just wanted to throw in there is that when I was doing my training, so I was part of a, you know, some, some in-person training and a mentorship group and, and an online sort of listserv. And there was somebody that was attending another trans person, trans FDM trans person um, was in the group, was a trained as a counselor and wanted to start doing assessments because in, in BC, pretty much any clinician can do the assessments, nurses, counselors, doctors, anybody. Um, 
And even he was saying, like, I want to learn how to do the assessments, right? And he was he was frustrated. He said he'd been reaching out to the health authority, reaching out to experienced clinicians saying, how do I do this? And I think he was looking for that roadmap that you talked about. And mm-hmm. I think I think for some trans people that have gender dysphoria, there's something really grounding and validating about feeling like, okay, I was assessed and this was ruled out and this was ruled in and I can rest in that. And I feel like that's kind of getting lost. It makes me wonder how many of these decision makers even have gender dysphoria then, but they don't understand the concept of like people, I think when they go to a doctor, they, they're being affirmed. I don't, I wonder how many people realize that there's absolutely no real assessment happening. There is absolutely no diagnosis happening. And I think some people are under the impression that if the doctor's offering the hormones and offering the surgery, that that's a confirmation. Yes, you are this thing. And whether they actually have gender dysphoria or not, I think that's such a disservice to not be able to ground people in the reality of their experience because gender dysphoria can feel so so disorienting. It's It can be a very confusing experience and a very unusual experience that not many people can relate to. And to have no framework to ground us and have this really this language game in place of evidence base, I really feel like that's causing a lot of instability in the mental health of the trans population, personally, that we're, that we're building our identities on this smoke and mirror show of language games that none of us really believe. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that the message, um, what I understood is that they don't actually and I, I don't know if I, I could say they as in all of them, um, but certainly Aaron Saft and, um, you know, so, some of the other ones um, think that assessment really shouldn't be necessary, um, that it's a form of, of gatekeeping, right, that it's discriminatory. Um, so, you know, we're talking about uh, how do we conduct a proper assessment um, you know, that lies on the premise that there should be one. Mm-hmm. And right. I think they talk about assessment only mostly, I should say, in the context of insurance. There yeah. was a lot yep. of talk the about need that. to rubber stamp that. Yeah. But and yet I've heard so many people, and maybe you if you spent time a lot in, in chat rooms more than I have, Aaron, but in a lot of different groups and chat rooms that I have been a part of in the past, there's so much insecurity amongst trans identified people to say, Am I trans enough? Right. Am I, you know, because there's no real definition of trans. So nobody knows if they're this thing, this mysterious thing, trans enough. There's just so much constant imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. that I'm hearing over and over and over again. And people that, you know, I am, do I belong? And, and I think this language game, I think these clinicians think that they're somehow liberating people by just removing that requirement. Oh, absolutely. And they they literally said, and it's not liberators. Yeah. They said that they're liberators. Yeah. Yeah, and it's making people insecure. It's not actually liberating anybody. Well, yeah, and and, and I think th- those those insecure people are the people that are writing these guidelines now. Um, and one of them, they they kind of all kind of rambled a lot in response to the question, um, but um, it was clear that there was a there was um, uh, you know a, a very personal emotional response to the question. Mm-hmm. One of them said, "I am a retransitioner," meaning. They transitioned, detransitioned, and then retransitioned, and I think so. So the notion, and I think that's that's why they're coming from places of, of um, embodiment goals and um, 
uh, and it has nothing to do with like with like um yeah I I don't even know how much how much they they a, a, ever experienced gender dysphoria or if they and again like so much of of the 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 context is that it's not necessary to be trans. Gender dysphoria is something that you experience due to minority stress being a trans or a gender expansive person in a cis heteronormative society. That's how it's all, that's how it's all framed and understood. Um, it makes so, sense uh, though. It makes sense what you're saying that these guidelines would be written by people who maybe feel that insecurity about their transness because if you don't really believe or you you worry that you're not trans enough, I mean, the fr most frightening thing in the world probably is an actual assessment. Mm -hmm. Right. Someone might find them out, right? If they have that imposter sy syndrome and that insecurity, so they're always that fear. There's always that fear that they're going to be found out by somebody. Mm -hmm. Well, but again, I don't think that there is, I don't think that they're thinking like that because I don't, because they're not thinking that, that, that that there is a concrete thing that is that is trans. I don't think they th they pretend to think that in order to to um uh, uh to to say that you know that uh, medical transition is necessary that these are life saving treatments. But but what they really believe is that I don't I don't even know what they what they really believe. It's all just so it's so vague and wishy washy, and it just it changes based on the context. It's I, I, I think, yeah, the problem is that it's full of contradictions. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. I just, I felt like I was getting, you know, whiplash yeah. left and right because, you know, they say this um, and build a whole, not argument, but a whole kind of way of thinking based on one premise. And then, you know, three minutes later, they're saying something that's built on entirely different or, or fundamentally mm -hmm. contradicts that other. And it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's baffling. Um, yeah. It's it's hard to actually keep one's mind um, and and really be able to 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 think um, when listening to all of this because it's it's all over the place, you know. Um, for example, on the one hand, they say that um, you know clinicians, there's no such thing as a clinician who doesn't know how to work with with trans people. Remember that, Aaron? They were saying, yeah. Well, because somebody, somebody who said, and somebody in the audience basically said, you know, a lot of a lot of um, uh, therapists kind of feel like 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 they don't know how to work with with trans population because it almost feels like a different species. Like it's like the, the rules are all different. Like everything is different, and um, basically they're like so so a lot of a lot of people have it, and that that was kind of based around like that that person was also saying, you know, please have some concrete assessment in here because, the, you know, we need to know what we're doing. Um, and the response, I think that's what you were getting at uh, there, Sophia, was how they responded to that. Right. Um, so on the one hand, there's there's no such thing as, you know, if, if you're uh, a clinician, then you should know how to help people who are, you know, coming to you for, um, you know, some sort of relief of suffering. On the other hand, they're saying you absolutely you need to know that you need to be practicing from the gender affirmative model, right? And that's a very specific and and um, contradictory and problematic 
approach. Um, so, but, but that's, that's a conflict right there. You know, do you need to know something or do you not need to know something? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, they, and they address it, they were, they, everything was answered in a very condescending way. It's oh, like, yeah. it's like, well, if you don't know how to work with a certain like identity category, you shouldn't be a psychologist is how that was answered because they're, they're not thinking about trans as a condition. They're thinking about it as a minority category, just a type of person like, you know, a Hispanic person or a homosexual person or like it's they're not thinking of being trans or gender dysphoria as an experience or a diagnosis or a um, a decision. But it's it's just a it's just a category that some people are like it's just this innate and, and and so if you're saying you don't know how to work with that person, it's like it's like saying you don't know how to treat a Catholic. You know, it's like it, like that's how they're that's how they're answering that question. Um, but well, uh, it's innate and it's fluid. It's innate. Right. right. And yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's, yeah. That's one of the fundamental inconsistencies there. That- yep. Yep. And then and, and, and it's dynamic and it changes over time. And, and that's great. And everybody's like, yeah, that's great. You know, it just. Um, yeah. Your gender I, journey never ends. It's yeah. It, it's yeah. uh less you know throughout your lifetime yep well i mean that's but a 12 year old knows if they need puberty blockers life-altering decisions and changing your body um that kind of you know reifies some things right uh yep. makes it irreversible so how do you maintain that you know presumption of gender fluidity or your on your gender journey and it if you're making these um permanent changes to your body right yeah yeah below the age of uh, uh, majority as well. Uh, but my, I think my favorite contradiction was was uh, Diane Aaron Saft. Um, or not, I'm not sure if this counts as, it's definitely a contradiction as far as the whole framework goes, but um, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Sophia. They, uh, uh, I think, oh, oh it, was, it was basically about don't, it was about changing words you so you just talk about genitalia you don't talk about male or female genitalia you don't say like they were basically it was all about the language and so you use language that's not going to cause dysphoria or be invalidating or or whatever and uh somebody asked basically you know have you found that when you use gender neutral language when it comes to anatomy does that relieve uh dysphoria and the response was basically oh some people have no problem with their um uh with with their actual anatomy so you don't have to even have to worry about that um i I realized that was just one contradiction getting to my actual uh my actual anecdote here which is that and Aaron Saf then tells the story about she's working with a nine-year-old trans girl who has a 13-year-old older sister um, who has just started puberty. And I don't know anything about child psychology, but I don't think this is how you're supposed to uh, do it. Uh, she says, are you jealous that your sister is going through uh, puberty and going to start menstruating? And or maybe she is. Men- I don't know. It just seemed really inappropriate to 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 say that, <laughs> like, to, to, like, basically, it's such a leading question. And then anyway, but the kid's response was, oh, no, that's gross. I'm so glad I don't have to, uh, you know, I'm not going to bleed. And she, she she told the story very dramatically, like, bah, bah, you know, like she's b- being a little kid who's grossed out by something. And then she's like, it's like, and that's gender euphoria. Right. <laughs> basically, being glad you don't have the anatomy of the opposite sex is gender. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Wow. Everything yep. was topsy-turvy. Yeah. 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 And no. just to go back to this, you know, there, there was a lot of kind of reminders to everyone that you know, someone said this in the APA panel that 
um, you know, we don't want people to feel sorry for us, right? We, we you know, being trans is, is a beautiful experience and you know, trans joy was something yeah. that was uh, said repeatedly. And then along too. Yeah, a lot of that, yeah. Um, so yeah, in terms of the the language and just, is it, is it suffering or is it not suffering? And I guess, you know, one, one could say, well, they're, they're um, acknowledging the complexity of it, that it's both, that there's something, you know, that, that involves suffering and it involves joy as well. Um, but it went, it went beyond an acknowledgement of, you know, the complexity of the human mind. It was, it was mm-hmm. really um, almost elevating, you know, the, the trans experience, whatever that means um to something you know kind of a a spiritual um mm-hmm. no a, a accomplishment or something um yeah it it was just what yeah whatever was celebratory like any any sort of negative is due to um you know minority stress right it's all it's all yeah yeah just kind of the, yeah that activist framework you you expect um but yeah just shifting depending on on the context or the question and sometimes in the it, sometimes in the, the same exact person in this like same exact line of dialogue the the the, the, the foundational premise will will shift uh, yeah. but as long as it sounds good everybody's just like yeah i don't i don't think there was too much thinking going on no no it's all feeling yeah and going back to the the anatomy issue um you know i remember aaron Saf saying something about um you know, any, basically anyone who thinks that, you know, girls can't have penises and boys can't have vaginas is, is just, you know, that that's preposterous, you know, to think that. That um, person's just an idiot. Yeah. They're not based in reality. <laughs> what else? I mean, she, you, you were re-listening to what, what she said. What is some, she, yeah, yeah, that was just, she said some, 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 uh, insane well oh oh my favorite was so uh, for all this time i thought that the gender critics were just clinging to that that video of the time um uh uh diane aaron saft said um you know a, a toddler can communicate to you their gender by you know if a if a, a assigned female child pulls a barrette out of her hair or if an assigned male child um undoes the 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 snaps of their onesie to make a dress. That's what they're doing. Um, she said it again. Like, I just thought we were clinging to this because it was so ridiculous. No, she said it again. She yeah. said the exact same thing. Uh, I was at, surprised at too. I was like, wow, you're, you're still on that. You still <laughs> in public to other people. Yeah, yeah. A, a toddler is telling you that uh, she's not a girl, but a boy because she took a barrette out of her hair. Like, mm-hmm. what? Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, that's the thing that... Well, I was like what I was saying to you, uh, Sophia, was that it, it's like one thing for her to say this. Like it's one thing for Diane Aronsaf to be this kooky cult leader, essentially. I don't know what how else to describe her, but for the audience of professionals to be like, yeah, and like just go along with it, just just agree. I don't know. It's just well, that was a big part of what I thought was so disturbing is that it's yeah. being in a at a, a cult retreat or yeah. something. That, yeah. That was- the atmosphere. I mean, I'm trying to go and follow what the line of thinking of that would be. I mean, yes, there's some truth. I mean, if you look at um, where all of this began with the study of, of 
intersex babies and went back when they were assigned a sex. And usually they were, regardless of what biological sex they were, they were usually assigned female because that was the easier surgery to perform. And the, according to the research and, and the belief system at the time was that there, there really wasn't, that we're all blank slates, that there's no mm. wiring for gender identity, that that's something that we learn through interacting with our environment, that I'm a boy or I'm a girl. And so this, they, they, they were assigning people, and, and it's my understanding the vast majority of those babies who were assigned did adapt okay to their assignment. I know there's a lot of activism around surgeries being done before they're at an age where they can consent to surgeries. But I don't think there's much dispute over the fact that most of those kids adapted well to their gender identity assignment or their gender identity formed around their assignment. But that had to be done prior to a certain age to be successful. And that was part of the controversy, a number of controversies with um, the Reimer case was that he was almost a year old when he was reassigned to female. And other awful things happened if his accounts were were true. There was also some bizarre things happening in the in the room with Dr. Money. But there so there is some truth that we have some kind of rudimentary cognitive process going on as toddlers of trying to make sense of what is male, what is female, and how do I fit within that, that schema. So so there is some evidence of that, like that that a toddler may have some early sense of what gender is and, and where they fit. And, and around age two or three is often when the childhood onset gender dysphoria starts if their gender identity that developed cognitively doesn't match their body. So I think that's probably the research that she's grounding that in is that a, a toddler would have some sense of their gender, but to leap to the assumption that because they're taking a bread out of their hair that that automatically signals the gender identity they're developing. That is that is so misguided. I mean, there's like thousands of reasons why a kid might yank a, a bread out of their hair, right? I mean, it could just be uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it, that, it, I think toddlers don't want barrettes in their hair. That's that's for the parent. Yeah. So it's such a bizarre sort of leap of logic to say that we can somehow come to some sort of conclusion by a a very kind of insignificant action like that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know about this. <clears throat> um, you know, toddlers having some sort of um, sense of their gender. I mean, I'd be interested in hearing more about that because I'm not even sure what that means. I mean, if, if they would have to understand so if we think of gender as it is a social construct, right? It's it's not something that we have control over. Um, it's imposed on us based on our sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess I'm using gender differently than how the ideologues would. So I mean, basically sex. Like most toddlers, like if you ask a three-year-old, is that a boy or a girl? Most, I mean, it's still very, it's still very um, preliminary and it is very based on stereotypes at that age and then as they get older and, and they start to incorporate more complex information into their understanding of what biological sex is and which biological sex they are but the average three-year-old could tell you if they're a boy or a girl mm -hmm. but is that because they were told probably yeah. yeah so i think it's i think it is because they're being told and that's why 
when sex assignment was happening for intersex kids and the, and the clinician said, to, you know, to the parents of this little baby, raise this child as female. So that would be the only thing that that child was ever told and, and would be adopting some of the stereotypes that matched what they were seeing in other in girls for most, for the most part, they developed this, you know, gender identity, which is nothing more than just an awareness of I am a boy or I am a girl that most of them did adapt to that assignment as female, as long as it was done at an early enough age, you know, if it was done too late and they've already started to like Reimer had a twin brother and was already one year old by the time he was assigned. So he may have already started to develop a sense of I'm a boy, like my brother, even though it wasn't language based. So I do think there's, you know, two or three year old does have some concept of, of biological sex categories, though it's largely based on stereotypes, not, not the more, sophisticated information like gametes or you know reproductive ability or chromosomes i think it's also um based on you know uh blatant differences bodily differences right if they if they see you know some people have penises and yeah. some people you could say don't have penises or have vaginas um and so you know just in, in that most simple way um they can distinguish between male and female. Uh, it's it's not so much. Um, it's not anything more than that. It's based on very kind of like I said, blatant, visible distinctions mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. are based on in you know bodily differences. Right. Yeah, but if they haven't had an opportunity to, to see anybody naked as a two or three year old, which is I guess possible. They would still probably develop some sense of whether they're a boy or a girl. I mean, they probably someone probably would have told them at some point, and they would have just picked up on cultural norms of how biological sexes look and behave and group themselves. Mm -hmm. I think, Aaron, where you're coming from is you you have a personal uh, experience of being three years three years old and being confused about whether you were a boy or a girl and not knowing what category to, 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 to place yourself in. Um, yeah. Which I think is a, probably a pretty unusual experience. Like I do think the average two or three year old would already have some sense of whether or not they were a boy or a girl and not have much confusion about that. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and well, that's, I yeah, I mean, your your experience is, like you're saying, I mean, that's, I think, um, pretty rare, right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and it doesn't apply to what we're talking about um, these days in terms of, you know, I mean, we already know this, but what's happening with, you know, the the huge increase and or what, what people mean, what kids mean when they say I'm trans yeah, uh, or yeah. I have dysphoria. Um, is something very different from yeah, it's, it's it's completely different. But I just think I'm just trying to trying to trying to understand what you know what Diane's thinking about it might be. I mean, if she's sort of using that body of, of research and her knowledge about gender dysphoria specifically, if she's then sort of looking at toddlers saying, well, what would be the signs then if this child was going to be dysphoric and they're two or three when that usually starts, what might be some of the signs? But I, I just think she's taking some leaps that are quite dangerous in in making assumptions about what certain behaviors mean and trying to identify kids too early. I mean, especially when we know that most of these kids are going to outgrow it anyway with just some support and if they're voicing confusion about it, that's when we can maybe intervene with some some supports. But 
to try to make assumptions about these really sort of really insignificant gestures, I think is is a dangerous concept. I think you're trying to trying to um, trying to uh, ascribe a certain logic to to Diane that just doesn't exist. Maybe maybe yeah. there is no logic, but. <laughs> You know, I've been, I continue to be absolutely baffled um, by her ideas. And, um, you know, that was the case before I, I saw her in person, but just sitting there, um, you know, seeing her in vivo um, and listening to her talk. And I'm, I'm just thinking, is she believing? Does she actually believe what she's saying or what's going on here? And, you know, I'm a psychologist. I'm trying to understand Um what her conscious and unconscious motivations might be um, for this whole kind of ideology that, I mean, she herself hasn't built, but has been a, a leading proponent of. Um, and <clears throat> just yesterday, actually, a colleague of mine, you know, saying, I, I, I don't know how to, um, it's just perplexing. Um, you know, he had an idea that she, um, that there is, an unconscious fear actually of gender diversity. So it, it, that makes her very uncomfortable. And so she's actually thinking in terms of the binary, right? That's why boys can't be feminine without being, you know, trans or, uh, um, you know, girls can't have so-and-so, you know, so-called masculine traits or, um, not want to wear barrettes in their hair without that being a, a sign of some sort of, um, uh, you know, being born in the wrong body or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought that was a really interesting idea. I mean, I don't know if it explains everything, but I do think it's a, it's a really interesting way of thinking about where this might be coming from. And then, you know, once, once she started to kind of build her empire of gender affirmative care, it took off. And now she's, even if she had any doubt, um, it would have to be split off and repressed because um, she's she's in it too far. And, you know, it's impossible for us to know what she's really thinking. Um, but- Yeah, I feel like there's like an element of, and I don't know, everything's narcissism, but I, I just mean like, I think there's a, there's an element of her, because of her involvement with the satanic panic as well, I think she has this need to kind of like we were saying about the the, the APA uh, uh, psychologists. They were saying, you know, it's impossible for us to have like we, we don't have this godlike omnipotence about somebody's gender. I think I think that that Diane Ehrensaft, I think she kind of thrives on this belief that she knows things about people that or children that you can't possibly actually know, like. Um, she has said yeah, that, I, by the way. Oh, oh, has when, she? Well, when people, when she's been questioned about like, how how do you know whether um, a child is trans or not, which, you know, let, let's just assume that there's such a thing, right? Um, she said, I know. Right, right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I think there is, yeah, a, a lot of just... Well, okay, so so when you're talking about if you know if there is doubt now, I don't think that she operates like that. I think I think there's the like yeah, there's that kind of um, arrogance that goes beyond arrogance, that, like like just this this need of power and. Yes. Um, but I think more so the other people around her, like the um, 
not Dan, not Dan Karasik. He's just as kooky, I'd say. Um, but uh, the there's others that I feel like where they're coming from is sunk cost. Um, you can't you can't entertain the doubts that are obviously starting to flood in um, because, <laughs> like I, I say, I say this you know if, for for a trans person to start real like having having regrets or concerns that's going to be you're you're going to fight against that you're going to try to um to squelch that because it's so difficult to wrestle with the consequences and so you're going to try to maintain that that was the right decision for you i think that the difficulty of that mental process is way worse for parents who've transitioned their children um that's going to be much much harder to wrestle with um and then for the um the 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 I can't remember his last name, Sean, whoever, but for all of these these psychologists, these um clinicians who have been for years transitioning minors, really bullying parents into going along with it too. We heard a lot of that there is basically what you do to get parents on board. And it was very much a case of the parent never knows what's right for their child. The child is trans if they're there the child is trans and they need to transition and if the parent is opposed to that well we just either they're transphobic or they just need time to get on board and they will get on board and then ultimately they'll be a um, what is it a, a a gender champion or something like that is like they have this roadmap for where the parents uh the, the progression from uh you know kind of doubter to a uh, gender gender cheerleader uh because i mean what else are you going to do if you put your child down that path um but yeah anyway i think so a lot of them they, they they can't entertain those doubts because what they've already done you know how many dozens hundreds of children you know have they have they put on this path like right. i don't know i think i think like jack turban it's like you can't you can't walk that back, you know, you just, you have to double down. And I think, again, a lot of people writing the guidelines are people who maybe have regret about decisions they've made for themselves and can't face that and are um, avoiding that by kind of, yeah, writing it in stone that it's cor correct, that it was a right decision for them and it's the right decision for everybody. Especially like you mentioned before, you know, um, the the person who uh is a retransitioner yeah uh, you know i i think i would be very invested right in um furthering this narrative if i were a retransitioner um because of all those the the changes and and you know we don't know why she i i don't remember their pronouns um they them yeah Okay. I, yeah, I, I don't know why, what their process was and why they decided to transition in the first place and then detransition and then retransition. Um, but, you know, we, we could, one possible reason for the retransition um, is that it was, you know, there were permanent um, changes to the body and it, it's, right. it's, we know from a lot of detransitioners they're they feel like they're stuck in this kind of um no man's land um mm -hmm. speak um and you know and then i i can see how that would really lead to a very strong investment um in um just like i said furthering this narrative um and and doubling down and digging your heels in and saying you know that um 
only you can know your identity and uh, that these medical interventions are necessary, life-saving, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And no yep. assessment, and yet, and yet talking about ways to assess nonverbal autistic children. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> well, that yeah, was, that was... That was, I just, I mean, I was sitting in the front of the room and Aaron was in back and I just, every once in a while I had to, to look back. I, I needed something every once in a while to look back, but he just was looking straight forward. Um, I, I needed some sort of, uh, I was proud of my poker face, <laughs> I, but I, I was also really paranoid to start with. You know, remember I was yeah. like, I was like, am I wearing clothes to blend in? Like <laughs> nobody draws. should have dyed your hair blue. <laughs> yeah, I should have. Pink, pink was uh, a, a hot color in there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, pink hair, but um, right with the assessment of autism. Again, they were they were talking about it really in the context of informed consent and in, in insurance, right? So, how do we get these severely autistic, nonverbal kids? what they need hormones or puberty blockers um and you know basically get the uh insurance to cover it um and so that's i think the only reason it seems to me that they were even talking about the necessity of an uh, of an assessment um it, it's not because they actually think that that there should be an assessment it's just mm -hmm. in order to, to go through the, jump through the hoops, right? Um, and then of course, you know, this idea that the the current assessments that we have, which we don't have, by the way, mm -hmm. are, are tailored for um, uh, you know, non-neurodivergent people. Um, and so the problem is the, um, are the measures, right, that we use not the fact that someone might be neurodivergent. Right. Uh, that's what that's what Diane Ehrenseft said was that um, the problem isn't that this person is nonverbal and can't. Yeah. Yeah. The problem isn't that this person is nonverbal. The problem is that the, the assessment is written in a way that's very neurotypical. And okay. basically, um, she said there are other ways of knowing um, and drawing. I, I, I can't. Remember, but yeah, she she got to the topic of drawing. But yeah. So. And then, and then Dan Karasik confirmed it. It's like, yeah, I have this patient. Yeah, the patient I was talking about who's nonverbal. Um, they, they like drawing a lot more than they like talking. Um, it's it, the, the the part that I found creepy, most creepy, is re-listening to that audio. And so they say that a parent doesn't know anything about their child, their trans child, because obviously the parents are transphobic. And so the child's not going to be open about their transness to the parent, except in the case of these nonverbal patients who their parents they're with them all the time so the parent knows so you can take you can basically fill out the assessment based on what the parent says that's only the case if the parent wants the child to transition right, right. in the cases of, of parents who are not on board with this nonverbal autistic child transitioning in those cases um uh, the, the the parent doesn't know is 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 incorrectly interpreting the child's nonverbal behavior. It's like the one example that he used was, no, the child's not dressing like Justin Bieber because he's obsessed with Justin Bieber. 
like the, the moms thought, it's because Justin Bieber dresses in a gender neutral way and this child is trying to demonstrate that they are trans by dressing like Justin Bieber. And the mom's like, no, it's just an obsessive autistic. Anyway, but they're, they're reinterpreting what the parent is it's very much like this parent does not want their nonverbal autistic child to transition. And Dan Karasik is basically saying, here are all the ways that you can coach the parent into believing your interpretation of these nonverbal behaviors as being indication of the child being trans. Like, I didn't really catch that. I didn't get that the first time I listened to when I was there in person. But yeah, re-listening to the audio, I'm like, he's, this is what he's saying is, yeah. yeah. A lot of it was um, basically how do we, how do we get everyone who might be in the way <clears throat> of, you know, medical intervention out of the way? Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Parents, healthcare providers, how can we, what can we tell them? What can we do? Yeah. To sure they're not in the way. And how can we get insurance providers to cover these procedures? Yeah. And that could actually be why, now that you're saying that, and I, I agree, and I think that could be why, uh, why the contradict they're so comfortable with the constant contradictions is because all that matters is what the current audience needs to hear in order for trans to be the end goal right so it doesn't matter what actually is grounded in reality and necessity but it's just like the the, the story changes depending on who 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 needs to believe it you know i don't know and Very you're, Trumpian. Right about, you're right about when um you know, when the parents are on board and they're, you know, affirming and or celebrating a trans identity, then the, then the parent's input is important, right? And, yep. Parent- yep. and the parent knows the child better than anybody in those yeah. instances. Yeah. But if not, if they're not on board or they're asking questions or they, they're, they have uh, concerns about medical interventions, then, you know, they just don't really understand they don't, yeah. they don't know their child and no one can know the child, only the child, him or herself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. They seem so driven to right to, to medicalize as many people as possible. Absolutely. It's like the more people that we can find, you know, we can even find toddlers now and nonverbal people like to, you know, to locate them and find them. There were efforts like that here um, in BC as well, where they had a screener that they were trialing. And the intent would be that the screener could be used as the intake process in any kind of practice setting. So like a, family physician's office. So they would do the screener with the idea. So it asked a lot of gender related questions. So the idea is how can we identify people in need of gender affirming care before they've even said, I want it. So it's a, it's a medical model of early screening, like for other diagnoses in, in medicine, you do want to catch things early. If I had diabetes, catching it as early as possible is going to benefit my health. So it's that kind of thinking applied to this trans phenomenon of how do we identify trans people before they've even identified it for themselves. Okay. It's almost like they think they almost like they think the more people that we medicalize, it proves that this is an okay yeah. thing yeah. to celebrate. And, and that in itself is such a an oppressive model like you know like so should people with diabetes feel ashamed of it because more people aren't being don't want to be diabetic like it, it just it doesn't make sense to me like like it just because it's small numbers doesn't mean i have to be ashamed it, my experience with gender dysphoria is unusual but it's not my fault and i shouldn't feel ashamed of it it's a, it's something beyond my control so i, I don't it's such a backwards it's a, it's an interesting statement on anyone with any kind of condition or 
any kind of experience or trait that is different from the norm that somehow we need more of them in order to not be oppressive. Right. I mean, isn't it a, a good thing if less people are suffering? <clears throat> it's like the myth of suicide, you know, um, that there's, you know, uh, trans kids are, are killing themselves left and right. Yeah. Like, isn't it a good thing that actually that's not true? Um, yeah. And looking at maybe there's something in their environment that is making them uncomfortable with their biological sex or, or, their, or people's discomfort with gender nonconformity. Is there something we can change in their environment that might support them better to just be comfortable as they are without needing to change anything? Why is that oppressive? It's it's a bizarre right. way of thinking. Right. And I have heard so many trans people over the years saying if they felt like they could have just been themselves with the body that they had and, and felt comfortable in the world and felt they had a place in the world and felt comfortable socializing with people, they wouldn't have med medicalized. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I didn't hear one example and, you know, granted, I didn't go to every single session. I didn't hear them talk about um, any, any cases where they decided not to put a child on puberty blockers or hormones, not one. And you would think in, in any sort of um, conference like this, that they would want to give you an example. Now, now here's someone um, who we determined would benefit from these interventions, right? And here's someone where because of X, Y, and Z, we determined um, that that wouldn't be the best course. I didn't hear anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised, but... Um, or even, even common sense ones that are still gender affirming, like, like the fact that puberty blockers would stunt penile growth and then later surgeries are going to be more complicated because now you have to harvest tissue from other places in the body, usually the bowel tissue, to create a neo-vagina because you can't use, there isn't enough penile tissue. So, I mean, is that not a valid reason for a parent to say, hmm, I wonder if maybe if, you know, weighing all of the risks and options, maybe we favor less risky surgery and not do puberty blockers. Like, why is that not a reasonable sort of thought process, to, you know, that there may be actually be benefits, even within this gender affirming model, there may be benefits to not using a puberty, puberty blocker early in life. Right. There, there was, um, there was a session on, um, on surgery and what they called surgical complications. And, um, you know, we just caught the the end of it because we were in a different one. Um, I, I think they, they do, or some, some people will acknowledge the risks, right? Um, and maybe say, you know, it would be better to do this later like a, a surgery or something, but it's not really, it's, it's not given, you know, the weight that it really deserves. Um, and it's, it's sometimes it's kind of put out like, uh, it's a decision to be made, but you can go either way, um, rather than it being taken in a very serious way. Mm -hmm. Aaron and 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 what about the parents? And you know, isn't it a valid, perfectly reasonable concern to have um, about um, you know specific surgeries like you're talking about? But even if someone says yes, you know, we we want to go ahead with medical interventions with our child, 
Um, but we want to be cautious about this, um, that even that can be seen as resistance. Mm -hmm. I've heard clinicians say, because this idea of gatekeeping is so much a sin within this orthodoxy, that clinicians are afraid to talk in depth about risks because they don't want to appear as though they're gatekeeping. That's right. When, when uh, in the answer to my question, the, the initial uh, answerer um, was was struggling, you know, like tiptoeing around words and trying to find a way to answer the question. And then eventually they go, we don't want to be gatekeepers. Like they said it in a very like, like, oh, he'll agree with this. Like he'll he'll agree with me on this one. And like, like the, their face kind of lit up like, like, <laughs> yeah, it was just like, I was like, no, no, I, I do want you to be gatekeepers. Actually, I don't agree with you on that either. <laughs> but um, uh, 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 what was I saying? Um, uh, or something else I was going to say off of what you were saying, Sophia, about. Oh, yeah, the only the only stories where in their anecdotes where the child wasn't transitioned, it was because the parent decided against it, left, basically sought a second opinion or just never heard from them, them again. And that was always told as like such a sad story. Hopefully the child, you know, was able to access gender affirming care uh, later on on their own. Um, one, another story that Dan Karasik told that again, cause he, he says, he starts to talk basically. Yeah. So, so autism overlaps with, uh, uh, gender diversity, uh, more than we would expect for reasons we don't know, but basically here's all the reasons why all these various varying degrees of autistic people should be transitioned. And one, he's, he told a story of a patient of his who was, um, uh, uh, had, who's autistic and had top surgery and was so distressed by the dip, like the, how, how different her chest felt after his ch chest felt after surgery that, that they couldn't work. They couldn't, they were completely, their life was debilitated just by the, how different that sensation of their chest was and the process of healing and everything. And, and I'm, just like, well, that's that's horrible. But he finished the story, but, but they had great relief from gender dysphoria, and you know, we're glad they had the surgery. It's like he he told every story with, but or like like the the, the nonverbal kid who they put on uh, on on uh, uh, on uh, estrogen or whatever. So it was a, a, a you know male to female nonverbal autistic child transitioned, and he's uh, <laughs> like, if if anything, if anything, she wished she could have started hormones earlier and got more feminization quicker. It's like she told you this? No, she didn't. You're just you're just inferring because that's what you want to believe. She drew yeah. it. She drew a she picture drew it. of it. Yeah, it's like, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, anything else you want to cover from that, or it was a wild weekend? Uh, I mean, there's so much. There's so much. <laughs> um, really, I mean, we could go through every recording and point out, you know, significant problems. Mm -hmm. almost everything they're saying I, I i don't know if i heard anything that seemed reasonable one thing that i actually was reasonable is we uh on saturday afternoon i think we went to a, a session that was a variety a lot of the sessions were just uh, uh different researchers or students presenting their uh their specific research but the one on um uh, like sexual dysfunction and sexual pain in female to male transitioners. And there was very, there was actually, there was a lot of information there and it was very, seemed quite 
like approached quite neutrally and scientifically and very much like, you know, we're not sure what level, like what, what dosage, you know, this becomes a problem, but they were talking about actual negative ramifications of, um, you know, testosterone on female anatomy. And um, there was, there wasn't much, there wasn't much ideologue speak in it either. Like she wasn't saying, you know, but the benefits of, you know, gender euphoria outweigh the harm of, you know, vaginal atrophy, you know, there wasn't any, she was just presenting the information. I thought that was pretty, uh, that was the only one where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually learning something of abuse here, <laughs> you know? I can't yeah. say that I trust the information even, you know, or the data. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, because I'm, I'm skeptical. Um, but yes, there, there were uh, at least acknowledgements of some of the difficulties. But again, I, I think to my mind, it was kind of still couched in this. It's kind of something you just have to deal with, but the, um, the oh, yeah. Ahead, right. And yeah. 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 A note on the language, um, the, in, in that uh, presentation on the slides, and when she was reading them, um, it was, it, you can never just say vagina. It was vagina or, or front opening. Front, then, it was yeah, front genital out. opening. It's like, that is some yeah. creepy language. Oh. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. You haven't heard uh, front opening? No. Uh -uh. But what's no. worse is, and I've heard this, or I've, I haven't actually, I never heard anyone say it, but I've, but I've read it. Um, someone in the, the audience referred to it as a front hole. I've so I hear that. that that's what I hear a lot. That's I don't, more that, common, that, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. But I think but she specifically said, and I think it was written front genital opening. It just sounded so like alien and I don't know. I don't, <laughs> 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 yeah. Um but yeah, no, you're right. I mean, and no matter what data is being presented, it's always the solution is always gender affirming care and transition is the right and appropriate. Um, thing to do. And another thing um, I, I want to uh, just for those listening um, uh, uh, down the line, we're going to do uh, a reaction to much of this audio uh, that was collected uh, during the session. And um, uh, Oh crap. Not for, what was, I lost my train of thought on what it was. I was going to react to anyway, there were reaction videos coming um, to a lot of this content but I forgot specifically what I was going to make reference to now. Well, can I add, I mean, I, th I think it's important also, um, like the question that I asked um, were, um, mm -hmm. they were they were referring in different um, sessions to, they were equating exploratory therapy with conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they did that on the APA uh, panel too. And um, mm -hmm. my question um, about, you know, just saying I'm, I'm hearing um, in a lot of these different sessions that gender exploratory therapy um, is being equated with conversion therapy. And I, I think maybe I don't quite understand what, what gender exploratory therapy is. Can you describe it? Um, and, um, you know, the the response was, I mean, it, it was, maybe it's one of these, it's a clip that, that, you know, you can play in this response, um, podcast that you do. Um, but the, the assumptions were that, 
it's basically, I mean, someone in the audience called it evil marketing to mm -hmm. call it exploratory therapy. Um, yeah. They're like, it's, yeah, it's clever, but evil. Yeah. Yeah. Evil. Yeah. Um, and that it's, you know, there's this presumption and they said, you know, don't take our word for it. You can look at their, um, you know, recommendations. Um, and they were referring to, to GETA, right. And the, um, guidelines, um, where, uh, you know, look at those and, and you'll see that the presumption is that being cis is better. Right. And this and that, I mean, everything they were saying was just, was just false. It's just inaccurate. I mean, I've, I've read them and there's nothing in there that says anything like that. Not to mention, I mean, I don't know the wording of the gender or the conversion therapy laws everywhere here in Canada. It's, you know, our, it's worded in such a way that it, it just refers to gender identity. So the, the gist of our legislation is that any effort to change a person's gender identity um, is, is bad. And so any, and they worded it as, um, basically saying that any gender identity other than cis is okay and and should be affirmed in therapy. Um, but there we do have an exclusion, two exclusion clauses. So one is, it basically says that, you know, it, it allows for, for comprehensive assessment prior to any medicalization and it, it allows for an exploration. I think they use the word exploration of their identity development and how their identity, whatever that identity is, how that developed and how it's serving them and what their options are. So, I mean, that's all that gender exploratory therapy is. It's just, it's a branding of just therapy. All, ther all therapy is, is an exploration, collaborative exploration with the client. Well, you know, that's interesting because someone in the audience, when, after I asked that question, um, said uh, in, in a quite hostile way, way, well, all therapy is exploratory. And, and so the, the insinuation, I guess, was that to call something gender exploratory therapy, it must not actually be exploratory, right? <laughs> because all, and they were saying- if you're specifying, yeah. yeah. If you're specifying, then you the, there must be like, you know, ulterior motives or something. And, and they were saying that the gender affirmative, affirmative model is exploratory. They're saying that's what we do. We explore. Well, how do you affirm and explore simultaneously? Yeah, yeah. And another thing is that they 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 talk about everything in that in the in the language. So it's like so they talk about gender exploratory therapy, where the ultimate goal is to get somebody to identify as cis at the end. Yes. Like, absolutely not. No, no, yeah. it's not. It's like <laughs> anyway. But the, the so so they're 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 not thinking, you know. Okay, is in terms of medicalization versus not medicalization, they're thinking about affirming gender expansiveness or making somebody cis. Like they have to, you know, they have to frame it in such a way for it to, uh, yeah, yeah, to, to keep the cognitive dissonance at bay, I guess. Well, thank you so much for joining up. us today. It's been okay. a fascinating conversation. Having not been to the conference, I've learned a lot from both of you. <laughs> Sitting here in, in a bit of horror. But <laughs> yeah, we, we took one for the team. Um, yeah. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. Thank you uh, again for being there with me. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that that helps a lot. I would not have survived it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, 
please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.